And it's hard to know what to do with that kind of introduction. Um, yes, I, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary. I, I guess you know this, but you're not really very Presbyterian in your worship, right? <laughs> Which is, okay, I won't, I, won't, I won't say that, not being Presbyterian. Um, no, I love my time at RTS. Uh, got to know a lot of folks in the Reformed world and still have a lot of friends there, but it's been great worshiping in this atmosphere. Um, for me, the style is not as important as the intention of the heart, right? Um, however we approach the Lord. Uh, but I have certainly enjoyed my time here in worship. I don't know if you could tell, but uh, I, ha I did. Uh, I want to really talk to you today about the call to mission. Uh, out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. And if you don't, you've got a Bible app. Pull out the phone and pull up the Bible app. And I asked Pastor Mark beforehand, there are pew Bibles. Um, which some churches are going away from pew Bibles because people have Bible apps these days. But if you need a Bible, it's there for you. Um, while you're turning, let me just say this. I want to thank Pastor Mark for the opportunity to be here and Pastor Steve. He's not here, but uh, I know nothing in this church happens without his okay. Um, and so I really appreciate him welcoming me here and opening up this place for me. And I appreciate Pastor Mark uh, for doing that. I really enjoyed the time that he worked uh, for us at Regent and with us, and uh, we miss him there, but uh, I know God has great things that he's doing through him here. The call to mission. So let me quickly read out of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, verses 6, and it says 6 and 7, but I'm going to go down to 8, and this is where I'm going to plant. I'm kind of the type of person that likes to plant in a text and just sort of go back to it, so if you want to keep it open there, that's great. So beginning at verse 6, and I'm reading from the NIV. For this reason, I remind you to fan into a flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God by the power of God. Throughout the history of Christianity, Christians from all walks of life on all continents have been responding to the call of God to mission. The call of God comes in all shapes and sizes. It's as various as the persons who embrace the call. Its colors are black, brown, olive, yellow, white, all of the various pigments that represent the beauty of the people of God. God invented community activism, but it's the activism of the gospel. The gospel which Paul declares both in Romans chapter 1 and we also see in our text this morning that is the power of God at work in the lives of those who are called according to his purpose. To fulfill the call is simply to become a conduit of the power of God that flowed first into you and now flows through you to others. The call is historically shaped and contextually pointed, historically shaped and contextually pointed. What do I mean when I say that? I mean the call takes shape in a particular historical period of time. This is Reformation Sunday. Tomorrow is Reformation Day, the day we celebrate, 1517. Martin Luther, on October 31st, according to tradition, walks over to the door of the Wittenberg Church 
and nails to the door 95 theses calling for debate on the doctrine of purgatory and its implications for the Christian life. God raised up Martin Luther to fulfill the call in order to address the challenges of the 16th century. And God is raising us up today in order to address the challenges of the 21st century. The call is always historically shaped and contextually pointed. It always takes shape in a particular context. Why? Because the shape that it takes is the way in which God uses to address the issues of the day. And that is exactly what we see going on in this text in 2 Timothy. Timothy's call is being shaped in light of the Ephesian context. That's where he finds himself. He's a young pastor. He had traveled with Paul. But now he finds that he's in these house churches in Ephesus, and a house church was somewhere between 10 and 50 people. If you were wealthy and you had a big house, you could get a group of 50 together. A lot of folks like Priscilla and Aquila would be in small tenement apartments, one-room buildings, 10 to 15 most. So in Ephesus, we have these house churches, and that's where Timothy finds himself in the midst of them, and it looks like, based on what the letter is telling us, that things are not going well for him as a young pastor who had traveled with Paul. We know Paul tells him to avoid godless chatter or empty babble in, two Corinth, in 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 17. What does that tell us? He must have been getting into arguments with people, and Paul says, it's fruitless. Stop messing around with these fruitless arguments. Paul even names people that he's supposedly getting into struggles with. He says, avoid Hymenaeus and Philetus. These are troublemakers. Leave them alone. He, in 1 Timothy, says this, stop messing around with endless genealogies. Stop trying to figure out who's got the better family. That's fruitless. It's clear that Timothy is struggling in these house churches. And Paul writes to remind him of the nature of the call. It is the call to mission. And what I want to do is talk to you for the next few moments in our time together about two things related to this letter and what's going on. One, I want to talk about the nature of the call. And then two, I want to talk about the effect of the call, the nature of the call and the effect of the call. As Paul attempts to explain it to Timothy in these house church settings, first let's talk about the nature of the call. And look back with me at verse 6 for just a moment here. Or sorry, verse 8. Verse 8. He says, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The call, number one, is for all Christians to engage in mission. The first thing we learn about the nature of the call is that it's for everyone to engage in mission. And all Christians are called to bear witness. What does he say here in this text? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That term testimony is where we get, if you look at the Greek text, it's where we get the term martyr from, martureo. It means to bear witness. The call is about bearing witness. And if you read the New Testament carefully, you will see that bearing witness is all over the place. What is the purpose of the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost? Because you shall be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. The pouring out of the Spirit is to turn the church into a witnessing body. When John the Baptist in the Gospel of John is seeing Jesus, he says, I come to bear witness to the light. He's bearing witness. In Revelation 1, when Jesus is addressing the churches in Asia Minor, and he knows that they are struggling 
with the imperial might of Rome, and some of them are struggling in the marketplaces. Clearly, there are businessmen and women in these house churches in Asia Minor that are having a hard time negotiating the business world because they can't bow to the emperor. And what does Jesus say to them in Revelation 1? I am the faithful witness, he says. And he calls them to be faithful witnesses. In the opening chapter of 1 John, it says this, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have heard with our ears, and which we have touched with our hands, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. And the letter goes on to bear witness. Witnessing is all over the New Testament. So what does Paul say here in this text? Do not be ashamed to bear witness. But here's something we need to get clear about. Witnessing is not quite, bearing witness is not quite the same as having the gift of evangelism. Although many times we conflate the two. We sort of put them together. When I was attending uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, I was on staff at a church, and we had one of our church councilmen. He was a Gideon. I don't know if there are any Gideons out here. Let me just say this. Love the Gideons. Love them, okay? <laughs> so don't think I don't. <laughs> um, this guy could witness to a door and lead a door to Jesus. <laughs> Talk about dead in Christ, right, or being dead in trespasses and sins. I mean, this guy... You give, him, you give him 30 to f- minutes to an hour with somebody, and he could cold call, walk them up to the sinner's prayer, and then hand them the Gideon New Testament with the Psalms, right? I mean, this is his thing. And sometimes he would get very frustrated at the people in our church because he would think, why aren't they doing what I'm doing? I mean, after all, we're all supposed to be doing this. And we kept trying to explain to him on the pastoral side, look, you've got a gift. And it's wonderful that you've got that gift. But that's not what we're all called to do. What we are all called to do is to bear witness. Some of us bear witness in and through the gift of evangelism. Some of us bear witness in other ways. What Paul is concerned about here is don't be ashamed to bear witness. The most powerful witness you can bear is by your life, and especially today in this context, right? Character matters, and the way in which you bear the character of Christ into others is how you can bear witness when they see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But all Christians are not just called to bear witness, they're also called to serve. Serve. Now service is not in the text that we're immediately concerned with, but it's all around it. Service. In fact, it's one of the central ideas of Paul's notion of ministry, is is to engage in servants. Servants are those who go between. Let me read to you a couple of passages, and I'm just going to emphasize some things. You can mark them down if you want and look at them later. One is from 1 Timothy 1.12. says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Service. Later in the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.6, it says this, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister minister, a good minister of Christ Jesus. And then if you look in 2 Timothy 4 and 5, it says this, but you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, ministry, service, good minister of Jesus Christ, ministry. The term underneath those different ways of different, different English words is the same. It's the Greek term diakonia. It is central to Paul's understanding of ministry. Now, I know we associate that term with deacons, but it's a more general term to refer to what ministry is. Ministry is always an act of service. So the way in which we bear witness in the world is by serving others. That's how our 
bearing witness unfolds because we go between. The term itself, diakonia, is about going between. So there are servants in households who go from the kitchen to serve the guests. They go from one source, the source of food, and bring it to another. But there's something more interesting about this term and how it was applied. The term itself came to be applied to Hermes because it means messenger, medium. And of course, Hermes is the messenger of the gods, right? It's Hermes' task or it's his job to bring down the messages from Mount Olympus to humanity. It's no mistake that if you look in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in this city called Lystra, and they say, Barnabas is Zeus and Paul, you are Hermes. Now, why in the world would they call Paul Hermes? It's because this, this term of diakonia is probably floating in the air. Paul is this messenger who comes. I don't know if anyone in this room has read uh, Percy Jackson books. Has anyone read any Percy Jackson? We got a few Percy. We got some Percy Jackson folks. My kids, have, I know the older folks, you probably haven't read Percy Jackson. That's all right. Don't worry about it. This is, a, this is a, an elementary, middle school kind of series, right, where Percy Jackson is uh, the son of Zeus. And he goes through all of these adventures with other demigods, other sons and daughters of these various gods. Paul, in a sense, is sort of saying that we are, we are like that. Now, I know it seems kind of strange, but if you read in 2 Corinthians, he says this, we are the aroma of life to others. We bring the food of eternal life down to bear on others. The food of eternal life is the gift of immortality. In our text, Paul talks about the gift of immortality. So the way in which Paul wants you to think about yourself is you are a messenger of God. You are a son or a daughter of God. The aroma of God's own life permeates your existence now. And you bring the food of God to bear on people when you proclaim the gospel to them. Servants are those who go between. It's a heady task that is before us. So the call is to engage in mission through bearing witness in our acts of service. Secondly, the call comes from within the household of God, from within the household of God. Let's look at verse 5 for just a second. Notice what he says. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives also in you. Skipping to verse 6, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into a flame the gift which is in you through the laying on of hands. The call begins in the company of the saints because it comes from within the household of God. Notice the connection that Paul is making here. Where did the call begin for you, Timothy? It began with your grandmother and your mother, the household, the biological family. And it also came through me, your spiritual father in the faith, through the laying on of my hands. Note what Paul does. He knits or fuses together the biological family with the household of God. You can see that same thing happening in the book of Ephesians. If you read it carefully, Paul will talk about the Ephesians as we are citizens of the heavenly commonwealth, members of the household of God. He says that, for God has created one new humanity out of us. And then, lo and behold, he goes in and says, now husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he starts to tick off the household. Why does he do that? Because these things are wedded together. Because the call itself emerges in the way in which our biological families and the family of God are knitted together, and it comes in the midst of both of them. The gift of God flows to us through these familial structures. 
spiritual and biological. In the Middle Ages, the way they did this was godparents, right? Because a parent in God represents your spiritual extended family. That's the whole point. In the household of faith, we learn the language of brokenness. You learn the cries of the needy by first hearing the cries of your own children, by first hearing the brokenness from your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your friend. It's in the midst of that, those cries, that slowly the flame of love for neighbor begins to emerge in our lives. The testimonies of the needs of those around us in the midst of God's people speak to the deep hunger of their hearts and call forth the Spirit's own groaning and travail within us. What does Paul say in Romans 8? He says this, the whole creation is groaning. And we, he says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. What does that mean to begin to groan? It means that you begin to connect to the brokenness of life around you. And you begin to groan and travail with the brokenness of others. And that connection first happens here. In the midst of the people of God, where you hear the cries of your neighbors. It happens in your homes where you hear the cries. I remember uh, growing up in a church um, in Florida. I'm a Florida, Florida boy. I grew up on the coast, Kennedy Space Center, Space Coast, all of that business. Um, and our church was uh, in a town right next to a main park. And we were on one corner, and there's a Catholic church on the other corner, and there were a lot of homeless in the park. And so they would come to either our church or the, or the Catholic church. I mean, we were the two churches there, closest in proximity, right? Um, and so I remember one night as a teenager, I was there, and a homeless guy stumbled into our church. And he stumbled up to the front and prayed and started praying. And I started listening to his prayers as I went down to the front. I remember how struck I was at this man who was trying to articulate and express what he could not express, which was the brokenness of the history of his own life. And suddenly, in that moment of hearing his cries, it was as though a lightning bolt struck my soul, and I found a love being conceived in my heart for him that I could not explain the origin of because I had no prior relational connection to this man. There was nothing that said I should love him except insofar as the Spirit was trying to knit me to him. And in that moment, the Spirit was calling me to step out. We hear the whispers of grace in the midst of the people of God, of deep calling to deep, the deep love of God reaching out through you and me to embrace the deep hunger of the world and calling starts there in the midst of the company of the saints. But the call doesn't, begin, doesn't end there. It grows through the gifts. Paul says, stir up or fan into a flame the gift of God. This term gift is charisma. It simply means grace gift. Sometimes I think the term itself leads us astray because if we're not careful, we can think of this gift as some sort of divine download that the Spirit just sort of dumps like a program, you know. I don't know if you're, there are any Matrix fans here from the, when, was the, when did that movie series go out? In the 90s or something like that, right? You know, if, if, you, if you ever watch that, you know, the way they learn something is, uh, while they're in the Matrix, is somebody just downloads a program in their minds and suddenly they're there. The gifts of, the call, the gifts of God don't come like that. Because they are simply the outflow of the working of the grace of God in our lives. Now, I know that might seem strange if you think grace is just unmerited favor. But grace in Scripture is not simply unmerited favor. It's not simply the attitude God has towards us. It is the presence of God within us. Grace is the power and presence. So these grace gifts are the manifestation of the power and presence of God within. 
the call begins to grow through these gifts. And if you look at the gifts in the list in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, it's interesting that the whole point is that these are not to be exhaustive lists. Instead, the whole point is to say that the gifts of the various are as various as the members of God in the body because the gifts are the way in which God particularizes the call to your life. The gifts are simply the manifestation of God's presence in you as God helps you to develop and grow into all that you are, which is why you cannot be everything God wants you to be without fulfilling the call. It's just part of our growth. When we develop these gifts, we begin to move to the rhythms of God's grace. I love this line. Now, I know it's not attributed to Eric Little. Those of you who are Eric Little fans, I know that. It's in the movie, but it's a great line anyway. And it's in the movie Chariots of Fire, and Eric Little in the movie says this, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. The gifts of the Spirit, when they are developed in our lives, we begin to feel the pleasure of God a joy that flows out of functioning and flowing with who he is. It's the same or it's similar to the joy that an athlete gets when he or she is performing at peak potential. You know, there's a moment usually in the game, and I played basketball or baseball, there's a moment in the game where if you are hot and you know it, you say, give me the ball. I want it. Come on, get on my shoulders. I'm, I'm there. I'm there. It's flowing. There's a sense of delight and pleasure that you get as you're operating. But it's not just in a game, right? It's playing music. It's not even playing music. Sometimes it's teaching. It's not just teaching. It's whatever your gifts are. When you are flowing in them and they are flowing in you, there's a sense of delight and pleasure that comes from that. When you run and run fast, you feel the pleasure of God. I like the way Frederick Buechner puts it in his book, Wishful Thinking. He says this, when we think about the call, the play, it is the place, God call, the place God calls you to, Buechner says, is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. The spirit who causes you to begin to groan with creation, as you flow in the gifts, those gifts produce a gladness in you, and the gladness emerges at the same time that you are meeting the need that the spirit has pointed to you toward. So what is the nature of the call? It is the call to bear witness to the grace of Christ that comes from within the household of God. It launches us out into those places where we bring God's gift to bear on a hurting world. Having said that, let's talk about the effect of the call. The effect of the call, second part. The first effect of the call is that it empowers us. The call empowers us to fulfill the mission. Now let's look very quickly at verse 7, and, uh, and then I'll skip down and read some more, but let's start at verse 7. It says this, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Power, love, and self-discipline. Do you know that the call changes over time as we launch out in faith? I said at the beginning in my introduction that the call is is historically shaped and contextually pointed. And what I meant by that is that the call takes shape in a particular historical period of time and a specific context within that period, right? 21st century, 2016, in the United States, in Virginia Beach. The call of God to you will take shape in light of that and those challenges. But there's something else here that's part of this. The call also takes shape in light of the history of our own lives. 
Sometimes we think that the call of God is, again, something that sort of comes to us and it's just done. And then we just live out of this. In point of fact, the call evolves with the history of who we are. And it changes and develops and grows with us as we change and develop and grow. Why is that important? Because sometimes people are co- become so fixated on a place that they can't move beyond it. Sometimes people become so fixated on a task that they can't move beyond it, and then they think that if they can't fulfill that task or if they can't be at that place, that they're not fulfilling the call of God. Let me tell you something. If God has called you to be with your spouse at the end of his or her life and minister to him or her, by helping them get dressed every day and by feeding them if necessary and by ushering them at the end into the arms of Jesus, that is a call that is as sacred as any other call. And it is a call that God wants you to fulfill at that moment in your life. And the gifts, like the gifts of administration, the gifts of hospitality, are just simply brought to bear on that. They're shaped in different ways depending on where we are in the history of our lives, which is why it is never the case that we are not called to do something, regardless of how old we are, regardless of what stage of life we are in. We are always called to engage in mission, and the gifts will take the shape of the particular call or the particular way in which the call unfolds, whatever period of life we're in, whether we're 30s, 40s, 50s, and all beyond which is why we need the Spirit to push us. Two things here in this text in verse 8 or verse 7. The Spirit God gave us does not make us timid. We need the Spirit to push us out of the nest, out of the nest. When people think of the term nest, right, we normally think of a home, right? You know, when a couple, young couple gets together and they marry and you know, there's this, there's this nesting sometimes that occurs, especially as they're, they're wanting to have children, right? The place is sort of, you begin to change things and as you prepare for the coming of that first child and you, you make a room for the baby and all that. We think of nest, we think in those terms, but we need to realize that the nest is really any place of comfort. And if we're not careful, the places of comfort can become the prisons, preventing us from launching out into the deep to fulfill the call of God. So God, Paul says, has not given us a spirit that produces timidity. And it's, the term is actually more challenging than that. It's not just timidity, it's cowardice. The power that we receive from God gives us the courage to overcome our own timidity, our reticence, our anxiousness. You see, comfort can produce cowardice. And it's so subtle that we don't even recognize it sometimes. The comfort of a job, the comfort of making a certain amount of money, the comfort of the places and people we know. Last year I sat in my office at Regent and there was a lawyer who had a very successful law practice in Texas who said to me, I cannot get away from the call. I want to sell my practice and enter seminary because I feel like I need to be doing something different. He had built this practice himself. I was just amazed at the courage to leave that kind of income behind a business that he had built with his own hands in order to pursue what God had. The only way you can do that is if you recognize that you are pushing toward a city whose builder and maker is God and that the empire that you are trying to make now 
will not compare with what he will make. And if you step out now, he will take care of the people that you love. We need power to overcome timidity on the one hand. On the other hand, look what Paul says. He says, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now, there are some of us in this room, we will go like that. You know, if the wind shifts directions, we're like, let's go, let's go, we're ready. We're, we're going to pack up, we're going to move, we're gone, man. You know, we just love to travel, to move, to go here, there. Nobody has to tell us twice. If I'm, you know, if, if, if I'm a, a preaching and you hear a preacher say, you need to go here, I'm ready, I'm ready to go there. What does Paul say? Whoa, 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 whoa. God has given us a sound mind, too. Self-discipline. Let's stop. God doesn't want risk takers who just love to take risks for the sake of taking risks. He doesn't need an adrenaline junkie who's out there doing it because he gets a high from doing it, and he will get a high regardless. He needs someone who's going to stop for a moment. You know, I encounter students all the time. They are on fire for God. They love God. They want to do things for God. And I say, that's great. Take the time to do it right. If God is calling you to step out, that doesn't mean that you sell your business tomorrow and walk away from it necessarily, right? It means that you begin strategically planning on how you can begin to fulfill the call in your life. Self-discipline. On the one hand, God needs to give some of us the courage to leave behind what we need to leave behind. On the other hand, God needs to help some of us with the soundness of mind to, to pull back a little bit, that, that the rashness doesn't set in and that we don't in, do something foolishly. The way Alexander Pope said, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, right? We don't want to do that. So love, Paul says, puts all these together. It keeps power from hurling us down headlong into places that end up hurting ourselves and others, where we become rash, we make too many big decisions, we go out, we take big loans, or we do all these sorts of things, and suddenly we find ourselves all immersed in problems because we've tried to fulfill the call, but we've gone too fast on the one hand. On the other hand, he gives us power and love so that we can move out and overcome the fear. What happens if I don't have that income anymore? Both of those, the call empowers us. And last thing, the call commands, commands. So what's the effect of the call? It empowers us to go forward, but it also commands us to guard the good deposit so that we may become holy healers. Let's look at this for just a second. Let me look at verse 9, and I'm going to move a little further. Paul says he has saved us and called us to a holy calling or a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Life and immortality. I love the gospel of John here. They come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Immortal life, the kind of life that God has. God commands us to guard the deposit so that we may become holy healers because we are shaped in holiness. Why is this calling a holy calling? Because it's through the call that we become holy. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. For we are God's workmanship, 
I love that term workmanship because the idea behind it is that we are the poetry of God. We are the, art, we are the artistry of the divine artist. We are the, we are the beautiful pot that the potter has made. God is weaving something beautiful out of our lives. And the way in which God weaves that is as we cooperate with the flow of grace in us. So God commands us to guard that. Guard that. Because here's the thing that we, we don't always see. We think that fulfilling the call is always about someone else. But in point of fact, as I said a few moments ago, fulfilling the call is actually about you, not just about someone else. It's about God helping you. You know the reason why God calls people to go into places that they don't always want to go is because there are demons that you have to face. And as long as you stay in a comfort area, you will never face those demons. You have so encapsulated your life and so buttressed everything around you and insulated yourself that you don't have to deal with it there. And God says, I've got to rip that apart so that I can get to the core of who you are. You're going to have to face this demon, but you will not face it alone. So go. Go. The call of God commands us to guard the deposit because this is how God shapes us and makes us a workmanship. We also protect the gifts and protect the teaching. Look at verse 13, and I'm wrapping up here. What Paul says, what you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We are to guard the pattern of sound teaching, Paul says. I love the word sound. Another way of translating the term is salutary. Now, I know salutary is one of those obscure English terms that you, we don't use a whole lot. We used to use it. And you've probably heard it before, you just don't remember. Who's, who's seen Charlotte's Web, the movie? Has anyone seen that, right? So, so what, 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 how do they greet one another? Salutations. Salutations, there you go. It's the English way of saying health. Health be to you, right? Live healthy, or, you know, in Spock's term, right? Live long and prosper. <laughs> Another way of translating sound is salutary. It doesn't just mean that the doctrine is sound theologically. It means that sound theology produces sound people. In other words, the way in which health comes to us is through a healthy teaching. Healthy teaching produces healthy people. So when we are made holy and guard the deposit, we become holy healers who extend the teaching to others and produce health in them. All of this has to happen by guarding the gifts. The last thing. Paul says to Timothy, fan it into a flame. And remember, I said the gifts are not like a divine download. These are organically connected to us. They come to us in seed form because it's, it's the way in which the Spirit begins to cultivate our natural talents and move them out in a spiritual direction. So when we talk about spiritual gifts, we're talking about the way in which the Spirit actually helps us to develop our natural talents in a way that they become holy. Okay? This is an organic process. It can be short-circuited, just like any organic process. 
The gifts can grow for a period of time and then they can begin to die if they are not watered, if they are not stirred up, if they are not reignited. And so Paul says to Timothy, I recognize things are tough for you. And sometimes, lest you feel too much guilt here, <laughs> I don't want to throw a bunch of guilt on people, sometimes it's just a result of life that the gifts stagnate has nothing to do with us. It has to do with the fact that we have been hammered by life. We have lost a loved one. We've lost a child. We've gone through a bankruptcy. Something has happened and it has tripped us up and we can't seem to get traction and the gifts are starting to wither. I don't know if there's anyone in this room that's like that, but I wanna tell you that I am here to say to you that God is saying it's time to fan this back. God will heal you of the tragedy. Not by making the tragedy go away, but healing you of the memory so that the memory does not become a source of destruction for you, but a source of life. If you will just step out and fan it, and the joy that you get from the gift flowing in you, your life will enable you to deal with the pain of the past. Guard it. It's not just that you're helping someone else. When you guard it, you are guarding it for you. So what is the nature of the call? It is to bear witness through acts of service. What is the effect of the call? It empowers us and it commands us empowers us so that we can move out under the power of the Holy Spirit and become holy healers, and it commands us to guard these things that God has deposited in our soul, not simply for the sake of others, but for our own sake. God is calling all of us to embrace the mission of God. And you can do this. I can do this. We can do this. Why? Because as we're about to sing in a few moments, and as Martin Luther penned, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. You have to imagine a man writing those words when he is facing a political and religious giant. In the same way that you have to imagine Paul pinning these words when he is in, in chains under a megalomaniac named Nero who had just unleashed Vespasian, his general, on Jerusalem to go in and destroy and level the place. Paul knows his time is up. He knows this guy is crazy, insane. But his confidence never wanes. Why? Because it's not built on things that are in this life. If you built your confidence on anything that is subject to time, it will, like everything within time, fade away. But a mighty fortress, a mighty fortress is our God. So the challenge for you today is to step out in whatever way. You don't have to step big. You could take a baby step. Talk to Pastor Mark. Talk to Pastor Steve. Talk to Pastor Chris. Talk to I just feel the stirring in my heart, I need to do something. And begin to discern. Remember, I said that the call comes from within the company of the saints. In this body, this place, and I hope, and I, I want all of you to, in your hearts and minds, pledge that if someone steps out, you will help them to discern 
together the will of God. Because that is the purpose of body life. That they might not become rash, but that they might have courage to move forward. Step out, a baby step. That's the call to you today. Amen. Pastor Mark. Thank you, Dale. See, I told you you get a dry, boring lecture, am I right? We would be remiss as we close our service if we did not give an opportunity for some of you to respond, because that was a heavy word. And if that was a a gospel dart that hit you right here, then you need to at least, like he said, take a baby step. And that that would entail just just, just agreeing, uh, just agreeing with the body of Christ. That the, that the Holy Spirit will come and fan into flame and do just that. So this time, if you are an altar minister, can you come up forward as you are so in the habit of doing? Thank you for your ministry, altar ministers. We really appreciate you. And so the altar ministers are going to be here as we sing this final hymn after the benediction. Feel free to stick around. And don't just, don't just find the time, but if you are convicted, would you make the time to stay and come up and pray with these guys? You can talk uh, to Dale. I'm sure he'll stick around or any of the pastors. Amen. Good. Sharon, we're going to come up and, again, uh, we've been talking a lot about Reformation Day, so we thought how fitting it would be to kick it old school here, and we're going to sing uh, Martin Luther's arguably his greatest and most well-known hymn, A Mighty Fortress, back in the 1600s, and we're going to sing it a cappella, am I right? So do you need this microphone, Sharon? There you go. All right. Would you all stand? A mighty fortress is our God, all bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age.
preach the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to try home through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no 